you're listening to Naked Neuroscience, the podcast exploring the workings of the brain and the nervous system in our bodies and beyond. I'm Katie Haler, and this month... Who the hell wakes up at 8 in the morning and makes cornbread on a Tuesday? We're talking food, drink, and the brain. What is hunger? How does thirst work? And how could the microbes inside us influence our appetite? First up is our usual neuroscience news segment, and cognitive neuroscientist Duncan Astle has been looking into a paper asking whether man's best friend can recognise faces in the same way that us humans can. Now, I'm not an expert, but I imagine getting dogs into an MRI scanner, as you'll hear about in a moment, must have involved a lot of treats. So they've recruited 40 participants, 20 humans and 20 family dogs. For the humans, their average age was 32 and 47% had a master's degree or equivalent and 37% had a bachelor's degree. For the dogs, their average age was five and to date none had yet completed any higher qualifications. (laughs) Oh, shame. So all of the subjects were put in the fMRI scanner, the Functional Magnetic Resonance Imaging Scanner, and they were shown videos with human faces or human backs of heads and dog faces or dog backs of heads. So we've got a two by two design, face versus back of head and species, human versus dog. And the stimuli were really carefully controlled. So for example, the dogs and humans would never look directly at the camera. And that's because apparently that can be triggering for dogs and can make them anxious or aggressive. So they had to think very carefully about how they delivered the stimuli. What they wanted to explore is whether or not both species are sensitive to faces versus backs of heads and whether they discriminate the kind of species um, that it is. The headline result is that in humans, there are lots of visual areas that are very sensitive to faces, but not particularly sensitive to species. Whereas in dogs, there were lots of visual areas that were highly sensitive to species. So those brain areas seem to distinguish another dog from a human being, but not to faces, i.e. they don't seem to distinguish the front of the head from the back of the head. Now, amongst their analysis, one that they ran was called an MVPA analysis or a multi-voxel pattern analysis. What it's doing is testing what information is being represented in different brain regions so that if we read out the activity in that brain region, could we predict whether the person was currently looking at a face, a back of the head, a dog, or a human. And in the dogs, they found that the left medial and right caudal suprasylvian gyrus showed really good decoding for species. So the dogs had brain areas that seemed to be quite specialized for distinguishing dogs from humans. But there are no significant areas that seem to be specialized for distinguishing faces versus not faces, i.e. backs of heads. Contrast that with the humans. So in one particular area, the right middle temple gyrus, you can decode species so they can distinguish humans from dogs. And then in loads of areas, including the fusiform gyrus, sometimes called the fusiform face area, you see selectivity for faces, so a classic face response. In essence, it seems to be that whilst both species can decode species of the person they're looking at, 
only the humans seem to have this kind of selective face processing set of areas. And a final analysis they did was called a representational dissimilarity analysis. Look at different brain areas and see how well it distinguishes all of the different videos that people were shown. And then they can test whether there are parts of a dog's brain that has a kind of profile across those video clips that's very similar to a part of a human's brain and vice versa. So they can see whether there are analogous regions in the dog that seem to have a similar kind of representational profile of faces and species as a human would have. And they find that they do get some analogous regions for species, but not for faces. Again, supporting the idea that dogs don't really recognize human faces or the dog faces. And that is that. So overall, is what the paper's saying that dogs are really good at telling that's a human, that's a dog, perhaps not individuals so well, whereas humans are really good at going, that's Duncan, that's Helen, that's Katie. Precisely. There are all sorts of explanations as to why that might be. So for example, most dog owners tell me that their dogs recognise them. But if the dogs can't really recognise human faces, then how do they recognise their owners? And my guess is that they're using other things. So it may be that for human beings, because of the way that our visual systems work, because of our language systems, needing to look at lips and so on, it may be that we become highly specialised for decoding faces and distinguishing one person's face from another. Whereas for dogs, someone's face is just one of many useful cues for distinguishing uh, an individual from another. And because they're not really looking at lips for language, the face is, is perhaps less vital than it would be for a human. So it's obviously a really interesting paper. I mean, the very fact they've managed to get people's dogs into an fMRI scan, I think is itself quite impressive. <laughs> but behind the, you know, kind of the novelty factor, if they're asking a kind of interesting question, which is where does this special processing for faces come from as in at what point in our kind of evolutionary past does it develop or does it emerge and you know we know that hyoid primates have similar face processing areas to human beings but it's obviously not ubiquitous to all mammals because the dogs don't show it so the question is when does it when does it crop up and why so it may be that for instance humans and other primates have a kind of uniquely sort of social interaction and social structure where being able to distinguish one person's face from another becomes a really useful tool that perhaps was not there previously for other kinds of mammals. Thank you, Duncan. Now, if you've listened to the last few episodes of Naked Neuroscience, you'll know we've been pondering the subject of play. And perceptual psychologist Helen Keyes' paper of choice this month, which asks whether playing with dolls can impact social development, fits rather nicely into that theme. Engaging in pretend play is really helpful for a child's development. It helps them to develop both cognitively and socially. And this study was looking at the neuroscience of this. So what's happening in the brain when children are engaging in this pretend play. So pretend play, or what you might call make-believe play, typically involves using toys or dolls to act out a pretend scene. And so you might be really putting yourself in the position um, of your toys or taking the perspective of your dolls as you're playing with them. And this type of pretend play usually emerges around the age of two. It can happen alone or it can happen with a play partner. But even when it's happening alone, there's a lot of evidence that 
this is still social in nature. So you're kind of imagining an audience in this type of play or you're taking the perspective of others in this type of play. So it is particularly interesting to us as psychologists to ask whether this type of perspective taking a pretend play does help to develop children's social brains, essentially. So the scientists in this study used FNERS, which is functional near-infrared spectroscopy, and that essentially measures blood flow in different regions of the brain. An increased blood flow would be a good indication that that part of the brain is particularly activated. And here, the scientists used this FNERS to measure blood flow in the brains of 33 children who are aged between four and eight while they engaged in different types of play. Either open-ended creative play on a tablet, so this would be uh, where you are cutting hair or building um, towns on the, on the tablet, so open-ended play, or if you're playing with dolls and kind of doll sets. Both of these activities were recorded when the children were playing alone with these activities or when they were playing socially. So the research assistant was engaging in this play with them. And the researchers were particularly interested in the parts of the brain that are strongly involved with social cognition. So empathy and perspective taking. And the particular part of the brain they focused on was the posterior superior temporal sulcus. And what they found, interestingly, was that there was no effect of the age of the child or of the gender of the child here. So the findings I'm going to talk to you about applied equally for boys and girls. They found that the social regions of the brain were really activated during joint play in general. However, during solo play, when you're playing with a tablet, that activation dropped off. So that social part of the brain wasn't engaged. But that activation remained for solo play when the children were playing with dolls. So it looks like imaginative play using dolls engages the social regions of your brain, these regions involved with empathy and perspective taking, even during solo play. That's so interesting, Helen, because anecdotally, I've sometimes heard you know, of parents who have a little one and then are expecting another baby might say things like, oh, well, we'll get a little one a doll in some way kind of to prepare them for having a sibling. Do you think this kind of speaks to that in any way? I think it does speak to that. It seems that playing with dolls or engaging in this type of imaginative play is a way of rehearsing your social skills um, and, and a way of, of really thinking, encouraging our children to think about other people and that perspective taking. So absolutely, I would recommend it to be a good idea to, to ask your child to engage in this type of doll play to develop them socially. But do we actually know if it makes a difference? I guess it's one thing to say these areas of the brain are highlighted, but has anyone followed kids up and thought, oh, these kids are better at, you know, they're more empathetic adults or, or anything like that? Well, engaging with this type of pretend play, yes, we do know that it's it's good for different areas of the brain. So we, in general, engaging in pretend play is good for your cognitive skills and your social skills. So that's quite well established. What was interesting about this study was it was showing that even in the absence of a playmate or that, that direct social stimulation, at a neural level, we can see that engaging in imaginative play with dolls is 
you know, recruiting those areas and in a way making those areas practice uh, your social skills. So, yeah, we do know that engaging in pretend play is good for your social skills, but this is such a direct neural demonstration of that. It's just really strong evidence. Do you think the tablet is a good comparison? Because I was just wondering about, you know, what if you just give a kid some blocks or a stick or, or nothing and just ask them to make up a game? Would that be more work for the brain? The reason they didn't do that is if you give a child some blocks or some sticks, they will often engage in the type of pretend play that we would um, engage with uh, when we're using dolls. They often won't. Sometimes they will just stack the bricks or make rules for a game for themselves. But they really wanted to disentangle those social elements here by just giving a child a tablet and asking them to engage in a creative free play, not a rule based game, but it, it wasn't a social game. The other point I wanted to make was that this study was funded by Mattel, who make Barbie. So while I'm very confident looking at the research methods and looking at the researchers involved in this study, that it was, you know, a proper legit study, it is important to say that it was funded by the makers of Barbie. Definitely. It's so great in that it's portable, the kids can play, we haven't got to slide them in the scanner. But also one of the challenges is that you don't necessarily always get the same coverage. So one possibility is that whilst the tablets seem to be less engaging social areas, it may be that what kids can do on them is more cognitively demanding in other ways than playing with a doll. So, for example, if they're building something on Minecraft on the screen, it may be that they're engaging all sorts of other areas to a greater extent than playing with a doll different toys for different types of play yielding different types of benefit. Do you think that's possible? Absolutely. I think that is certainly the case. If we were asking a child to engage in rule-based play, we would almost certainly see frontal areas, the prefrontal cortex uh, recruited much more than during doll play. So absolutely, I would recommend that we should be encouraging our children into all these different types of play. So not, you know, doll play alone, might be great for social skills, but not so great for cognitive skills um, and vice versa. I think what it really tells us when we put all this research together is it's a really bad idea to have children just playing with one type of, of stimulus or one type of game all the time. Helen Keyes there, with Duncan chipping in at the end. And as usual, if you'd like to follow up on the references to these papers, the links are on this episode's show page on nakedscientist.com slash neuroscience. If you click on the interview for this section and scroll down, the references are listed below the interview transcript. Scientists from 23andMe have been unpacking one of the biggest events in history. There were so many people impacted by the slave trade. So when they compare the genes to the historical shipping orders, why don't they match up? That's not the full story when we start to look in more detail at certain regions of the Americas. Find out on October's episode of Naked Genetics, wherever you get your podcasts. Music in the programme is sponsored by Epidemic Sound, perfect music for audio and video productions. Now, with working, socialising and generally being at home much more than I otherwise would for most of this year, I've personally found I've been visiting the snack cupboard rather more frequently than usual. And it got me thinking about my drive, if that's the right word, to eat and to drink. Whether it be a glass of water in the morning, 
lunch, a snack, or that afternoon cuppa to pet me up about 3pm. So for the rest of this episode, I'll be chatting to a few experts about what's going on in the brain and the rest of the body when we eat and drink. And as well as ourselves, we'll be considering the trillions of microbes that make up our gut microbiome and how they might get involved as well. First up though, I want to find out about hunger. When I get that rumbling feeling, what's actually going on? How is my brain, along with the rest of my body, controlling how, what and when I eat? This is an enormous subject, which is quite difficult to do justice to in the limited time we have for this episode. But to make a start, I quizzed Cambridge University geneticist Giles Yeo. So hunger is the drive to eat, right? Appetitive drive to eat. It's what we're evolved to get so that we make sure we take on nutrients when we need nutrients. Okay, so let's go with that as hunger. But given that we only experience hunger within ourselves, then what is hunger? That feeling. And I think that's the real difficulty of it. It's almost, you've almost asked a philosophical question. But uh, in terms of signals, it's not just one signal. Your brain needs to know two pieces of information in order to modulate your food intake. The first piece of information your brain needs to know is how much fat you are carrying on board. Why is this important? This is important because how much fat you're carrying on board is how long you will last in the wild without any food. Okay, Not a problem today, we have too much food, but a problem in the past where we never had enough food. But then the second piece of information that your brain needs to know is what you are currently eating and what you have just recently eaten. So these are now your short-term signals. And these short-term signals are going to come from your gastrointestinal tract, your food-to-poop tube. And these signals are released because the moment we start eating and munching and swallowing, it goes through our stomach, our intestines, and out the other side. The entire tube uh, gives off hormones, letting your brain know um, not only how much you're eating, but what exactly you're eating, what the protein, fat, and carb content is going to be. So your brain then senses these long and short-term signals and influences your interaction with food. And so when you ask what is hunger, clearly hunger is when these signals, the short and long-term signals, signal to your brain to say, "Uh, I think you're going to need to eat some food now. That is hunger. And what is the sensation that perhaps a lot of people will associate as being hungry? You know, when you've got that rumbling in your stomach and it's slightly uncomfortable, what actually is that? The rumbling in your stomach and your intestines actually comes from the washing machine-like nature that your stomach does. It kind of moving juices about. This process is called peristalsis. So in your stomach, it moves things around like a washing machine, around and around and around. In your small intestine, it moves stuff down in one direction towards the, towards the poop end. Now, what is interesting is that these actions actually happen all the time. However, the reason you hear it Suddenly, when you think you're when you're hungry, it's because your stomach and your intestine is then empty. So the food that is normally there muffles the sound, and so if you're full now because you've just had lunch, you won't hear it because because everything is actually muffling it out. The reason you hear it, it's because you have an empty stomach, and so therefore it is often associated with being hungry because a your stomach and your intestines are empty. And so therefore, you then hear the sound. And we've now been conditioned to think, ooh, my stomach's rumbling. I am hungry. And so it's a link between the two. So you mentioned there's the long-term context and the short-term context to being hungry. But 
How much of being hungry is motivated by, say, your body responding to depleted reserves or responding to some sensory information like, well, like smelling something delicious or walking past a cake shop or something like that? So all of it is going to be integrated. So it's very difficult to say what percentage it is. It's not one signal. It's a whole, all your sensations, all your senses that, that, that are there will actually feed into this input. And secondly, it's going to differ from person to person. We, we know people, for example, who love their food and so are probably going to be far more sensitive, far more sensitive to all of the tactile, the smell, the vision, you know, and all of the accoutrements that, that surround food. Okay, but I've got that's me, just just FYI. But but I've got friends who consider food as fuel. My colleague sits in my office next to me and he eats the same damn cheese sandwich every single day and has for the past 10 years that I've known him. But he clearly gets hungry when he's hungry, but he doesn't necessarily think about food all the time like I do. He doesn't know what's going to happen for dinner thinks about dinner when it's time for dinner, when he's hungry. And so I think each of us have different thresholds for, for all the sensations, molecular, hormonal, or, or, or just for your eyes and the smells. Mm. And it's this interaction which therefore guides and influences our interaction with food, a menu, the, the restaurant, the refrigerator. Giles Yo there, and we'll be coming back to Giles later on. But with all this hunger talk, we're not going to leave out first. Oh no. Here in the UK, we're told to drink about six to eight glasses of water a day, but chances are you might have a caffeine hit or two, maybe you've got some fruit juice on the go, a fizzy drink, some squash, the list goes on. And naked scientist Eva Higginbotham spoke to Princeton's Christopher Zimmerman, who has recently been awarded the Eppendorf and Science Prize for Neurobiology, for his essay describing his breakthrough research into the science of thirst, which apparently has been upending the textbooks. My research asks a really simple question, which is how does the brain produce the sense of thirst and how does it use this information to control our drinking behavior? There's a small group of cells located deep in the brain that we call osmosensors. And we call them osmosensors because they can sense changes in the osmolarity or the concentration of molecules and salts in our blood. And these changes in osmolarity is the main hallmark of dehydration. From our understanding of these cells, we would say that the sensation of thirst is just how hydrated we are at any one given point in time, how changes in blood osmolarity are occurring. But we know from introspection and from a lot of research that that's not actually how we feel thirst. For example, when we've been quite thirsty or dehydrated, maybe after exercising, and we drink water, our thirst is quenched almost immediately, even though that water won't actually enter the bloodstream and correct our deficit for many minutes. And it's really been unknown how the brain solves this problem. We reasoned that what we needed to do was record the activity of these thirst neurons located deep in the brain. Obviously, this would be very challenging in humans, so we used mice to study this problem, who have very similar brain structures and also drinking behavior to humans. And we use new tools in neuroscience that allow us to put a fiber optic cable in the animal's brain and then record the activity of these cells in real time as a mouse is freely behaving so it can walk through its environment and eat and drink and do anything it like. And we can ask what these neurons care about as it does that. And what did you find? 
So the first thing we found was that these neurons are osmosensors. If the osmolarity of the blood increases, the activity of these cells increases, and that makes the animal feel thirsty. What was really surprising is that, for example, when the animal then went and drank water, rather than slowly turning off as the water entered the bloodstream, these neurons turned off almost immediately, a little bit with every gulp or lick that the animal took in a way that counted how much the animal was drinking. So they seemed to be getting some anticipatory or predictive signal from elsewhere in the body that was letting them predict how the water would affect hydration in the future. So it seems like really direct feedback then. How is it that they taste the water and immediately the brain is saying, all right, we're getting some of what we need right now? It's really interesting. There seem to be layers of signals that arise from different parts of the body as we drink. So, for example, there's a first signal that comes from the mouth and throat that signals exactly how much, so the volume that we've consumed. And this involves, as far as we can tell, a number of sensory properties, including the temperature of the mouth um, and maybe swallowing as well. And then there's another signal that arises a little bit later from the gut, from our stomachs and intestines, that tells these cells in the brain not how much we drank, but what we drank. So was it pure water or how salty was it? And they can use this information to then decide how thirsty we should be in the future. So how do you think these signals work? Yeah, that opens a really interesting set of questions to address moving forward. We never knew these signals existed before, and it's been really interesting to see how they affect our behavior. But it also suggests that there are cells and molecules in our periphery, so in our mouth and throat and gut, that are initiating them. So cells in our mouth that express a protein that lets them sense water or fluids, cells in the gut that express some protein that lets them sense osmolarity, and then neurons that take this information from those distal parts of ourselves and send it to the brain. And we're really only beginning to understand those pieces in this system, and looking for and identifying them is going to be really exciting in the near future. Christopher Zimmerman there, speaking to Eva. Now, let's get back to food. We heard from Giles Yeo earlier about hunger. So what about satiety? Back to Giles. Feeling hungry is different from feeling full. You might think, well, they're related, but they're two different processes. So the feeling fullness, interestingly enough, tends to come from the gut hormones. So I think our gut releases, I'm now going to get this wrong and people are going to at me, that at last count, around 22 to 23 different hormones that we have identified from our gut. Okay. Now of these, call it 22, it's going to be a plus or minus, 20 of them, so the vast majority of them make you feel full. Wow. Okay. And those are the full signals. Now, now the, the fat signals, because they're long term, they're there to tell you, okay, well, this is what the bank account looks like rather than a change in your pocket. So those signals, the signals from fat tend to signal starvation because clearly you're not going to be starving if you're feeling hungry, but you have plenty of fat because you're not starving. So I think the feeling fullness comes from your gut, typically, whereas the starvation signals, all the neuroendocrinology, all of the hormonal milieu that turns on when you're actually starving, those are going to come from your fat or lack, or lack thereof. In terms of the communication that goes along and the vagus nerve between the brain and the gut, I know it's two-way, but am I right in thinking there's quite a big sort of bias that a, a big percentage of nerve fibers in the vagus nerve go from the gut to the brain? You're right about the bias. It tends to go northward. <laughs> so, so the stretch signals and any number of things will go from the gut uh, directly 
hardwired uh, directly to the hindbrain. So the vagus tends to be directly um, sort of to the back of the head, tends to come up via that route. That is one set of signals that come from the gut. The ones that make you feel full, however, those signals tend to be hormonal. So in other words, they are hormones that are secreted into the blood, circulate, and then so they're not hardwired. They're fly-by-wired homing devices, hormones. Are we talking about ghrelin? Ghrelin is one of them. Now, interesting, you should mention ghrelin. I told you about the 22 different gut hormones, most of them making you feel full. Ghrelin is one of the two that make you feel hungry. <laughs> oh. So, so, so exactly. So, so there are two. The other one is called insulin like peptide five, and it's, it's not as powerful as ghrelin, but ghrelin is one of the key in inverted commas hunger hormones. Thanks, Giles. Now, we know we're not alone in our bodies. We've evolved with all sorts of microorganisms, honours and inners. And the gut, of course, has an important role to play in the process of digestion. So how could the gut microbiome get involved here? Katerina Johnson researches connections between the microbiome, the brain and our behaviour at Oxford University. And I asked Katerina to explain what is understood about how the microbes in our gut could be influencing our appetite. We think of our gut largely as somewhere that we digest our food and obviously that that's a key part of it but there's so much more that goes on beyond that in the way that our gut can communicate with our immune system, our nervous system and our hormones. And so one aspect to do with this is that we think that our gut microbes may actually have some effect on our appetite control and hunger through interacting with our body's own hormones and also nervous system, especially the vagus nerve. Now, last time we spoke, this was actually for another Naked Neuroscience episode um, about gut feelings. We talked a little bit about perhaps what you eat is relevant in the question of how eating and gut microbes are related. Um, Mm. But from what you said last time, I got the sense that we don't really know that much about the specifics in terms of specific dietary choices. Is that fair enough? Yes, the one definite is that fibre is really beneficial for for our gut and gut health. And that's true also when it comes to potentially affecting our, our feelings of hunger and satiety. When our gut microbes break down our food, which we call microbial fermentation, they release uh, lots of different um, chemicals. And in particular, when microbes break down fibre, they produce um, short chain fatty acids. And we actually know that these can affect the levels of our hormones that are involved in appetite regulation. So that might actually be one reason why we feel fuller for longer when we eat a lot of fibre, because actually when this fibre is broken down, it produces these short-chain fatty acids that regulate our gut hormones, such as a peptide, tyrosine, tyrosine, glucagon-like peptide. And we actually know, for example, that the short-chain fatty acid butyrate promotes the feelings of uh, satiety. I mean, these short-chain fatty acids actually have a really diverse range of effects on the body and our physiology. So not only do they affect um, our appetite control, but they can also affect our behavior and cognition. And they're actually small enough that they can, in some cases, cross the blood-brain barrier so they can get directly from our blood circulation into our brain. There are a couple of different categories of fibre that we can eat. The type that Katerina is referring to in terms of fermentation is soluble fibre. 
Think soft, moist fibre, fruit, veg, pulses, which blends with water to make a gel. It's perhaps less well known than its famous counterpart, insoluble fibre. Think roughage, the stringy nature of celery, sweet corn, things that don't mash up. And fibre isn't the only context in which gut microbes get involved with our food. We do think that they play a role in uh, laying down fat deposits and helping us to metabolise food. And it's quite a controversial area, but we think that some types of bacteria are better at extracting uh, nutrients from food than others, other types of bacteria. And this might actually be one reason why some people are prone to putting on weight and some people tend to be quite slim. It might actually be that the slim people have less efficient microbes, so they extract less nutrients from their food. Katerina explained to me that in general, more diversity in the microbes in your gut tends to be linked to good health and more diversity in the diet tends to be linked to diversity in the gut microbes. After all, different microbes like to break down different types of food. So I wondered, could a problem with your gut microbiome lead to your eating behaviour changing for the worse? We don't know this area in detail, but we know that the gut microbiome interacts with lots of hormones and neuropeptides. And so, for example, our hormones that control appetite, particularly uh, ghrelin, which is associated with the feeling of hunger, and leptin, which is associated with us feeling full. So if we disrupt our gut microbiome, it may well influence these hormones and might make us, for example, more hungry. Although, on the other hand, we have to be kind of careful that we don't put too much agency on the bacteria. So there's this kind of temptation to think that they might manipulate our eating behaviour, you know, perhaps for their own means to make us eat, you know, certain foods. But if we consider this, you know, scenario using evolutionary theory, this kind of manipulation is unlikely to be the case because we have such an immense diversity of microbial species and strains that live in our gut. So, for example, imagine there was a you know, bacteria that went to a bit of an extra effort to produce a signaling chemical to manipulate our eating behaviour. This bacteria wouldn't actually last very long in the gut because it would be outcompeted by all the other bacteria that weren't making this you know, additional energetic investment. So for sure, our gut microbiome influences our appetite control but probably not in a way that is kind of purposeful or, you know, to manipulate the behaviour of the host. I see. And I guess you've got to be careful that you're not equating potential correlation to potential causation, right, in this relationship. Sure. Yeah, exactly. Katerina shared a couple of other interesting research highlights from the world of gut microbes and appetite. We tend to think that when we feel full, it's kind of our stomach or our intestines that you know have stretched. But gut bacteria, there's some research suggesting that they might also be involved in, you know, affecting how full we feel. So basically, the researchers looked at um, proteins that are produced by the common bacteria in our gut, um, E. coli, and they found that about 20 minutes after um, feeding, the study was done in animals and um, mice and rats, but the E. coli basically started producing a different set of proteins. And it was interesting that it was 20 minutes after feeding, because that tends to be the amount of time that it takes someone to feel full. So they wondered whether these proteins produced by the bacteria were contributing to this feeling of fullness. So basically, they took these proteins and injected them into rats' mice. 
And they actually found that the rodents uh, reduced their food intake, independent of whether they were hungry or whether they'd just eaten. The proteins that are produced by the bacteria actually uh, stimulated the release of hormones that we know are implicated in regulating our satiety. Another finding from their research was that the animal's bloodstream had a chemical in that derived from the bacteria, which actually um, increased the firing of brain neurons that help to diminish their appetite. Yeah, it's quite interesting because uh, these proteins that are produced by E. coli can actually be involved in the same molecular pathways that are used by our own body to signal when we're full up. Much more still to learn, of course, but interesting stuff. Thanks so much, Katerina Johnson from Oxford University. So far this episode, we've chatted hunger, thirst, and how the microbes in the gut could be involved with our eating. But I, for one, don't just eat when I'm hungry. I identify with the comfort eater scenario. And sometimes that craving for chocolate can be pretty powerful. So how does this work? Back to Giles. I think it feeds into the feeling of hunger. I think it modulates hunger. So Let's simplistically, I think we can split our brain from a food intake perspective, pardon me, into two major control centers. Now, they're not separate, but conceptually. The first is the fuel sensing area. Okay. And this literally, I guess, if we look at it simplistically, it senses how many calories you have used and therefore how many calories you need to eat in order to make up what you've used. Fuel sensor. Okay, And this sits in an area of the brain called the hypothalamus, typically. But then there is also another part of the brain, and this is called the hedonic region of the brain or the reward area of the brain. Now, this is the part of the brain that makes eating feel good. It is also where it controls your cravings and your wants and your needs rather than necessarily how hungry in terms of from a fuel perspective you are. Let's just uh, take an example. We know that when we are really, really, really hungry, the simplest foods in the world taste delicious. A piece of cheese, a little bit of bread, some rice. Mm, mm, mm. But then the fuller you become, the more picky you become with your food. Okay, so, so we know this phenomenon. We go through it every single day. So there we have a, an, an example of when you're really hungry. And so therefore you need, you need fuel. Your fuel sensor is going empty, empty, empty then your craving levels for certain things either change or the threshold drops because then bread, cheese, and simple foods taste absolutely delicious. Whereas the fuller you become, because your fuel sensor is saying, "Mm, we don't need that much fuel, suddenly what it takes to trigger your cravings, what it takes to trigger your reward pathway is completely different, right? So suddenly bread and rice going, ah, no, you need a chocolate cake, Mm, right? You need something which is highly energy dense to trigger that area of the brain. So those cravings are going to come more from the reward and hedonic areas of the brain, but it influences and speaks to the fuel sensor part of the brain. So aside from hunger, then, if someone's inclined to eat through stress or particular emotions, a particular emotional state, say you're sad or something, is that then tapping into the hedonic pathway that you mentioned rather than the fuel sensing pathway? I'm going to answer this in a sense where we don't actually know with a capital N, K, capital K, I have a 
PhD, you know. So, so, so with, uh, so we, 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 because you're absolutely right, right? Uh, there are some people when they're stressed, eat, and some people when they're stressed, don't eat. And this is a different type of stress than tiger stress. That is run, run the hell away from, from anything. Everyone universally responds to tiger stress. Otherwise, we're going to be dead. Whereas the chronic stress that at work and, and, and what have you are, are there, there's a diametrically opposite response to, to, to how we actually respond to the stress. And it's the same hormone. It's cortisol, right? It's not even different hormones, exactly the same hormone. And I think where people are going with this is that um, stress is unpleasant. And so you want to try and remove that stress. For some people, removing that stress is food. Other people maybe need drugs. They maybe need alcohol. Maybe they do bungee jumping. You know, and maybe they go running, you know, these, these, these crazy people that go run when they're stressed because it makes them feel better. So I think that's probably where we are. It might seem like I'm asking a bit of a flippant question, but I don't think I am mm. actually. You know, when, when we first started talking, I mentioned I've been visiting the biscuit cupboard more because I'm working from home and I'm socializing virtually from home. I'm basically living in my house uh, exclusively. What do you sort of forecast as being the consequences of the way that we eat? considering a lot of us have been in our houses for quite a lot of the time over the past six months. How do you feel about our relationship with food collectively, I guess is my question. Collectively is a strong word. I think, I think depending on your response to food and how you behave around food, I think the lockdown will have a number of different effects, some positive, some negative. So for me, I, I found out at the beginning of lockdown, for instance, on a Tuesday, going down before starting the daily routine, and make cornbread. Who the hell wakes up at eight in the morning and makes cornbread on a Tuesday? Okay, but I love my food, as I said. Whereas other people might have gotten stressed during lockdown. And so suddenly there was this chronic stress that was there, and you happen to be closer to your um, to your fridge, to your kitchen, and being able to do what you want. And so therefore, those people may have actually ended up, um, ended up eating more than they would have liked. And obviously, then there are the people who really loved to do their exercise because that was a good outlet for them, but then they didn't actually manage to do that. And so as a result, didn't burn up the calories which they, which they ate as well. So I think it all depends on who you are. Now, on top of that, I know I was fortunate in lockdown. I was fully paid through lockdown because I had a job, mm -hmm. whereas there were a lot of people who lost their jobs. Mm -hmm. And so therefore they were then going to have a completely different relationship with food because what kind of food was available to them? Did they have to turn towards cheaper uh, foods with longer shelf life, so-called ultra processed foods, for example, which are high in fat, sugar, and salt. So it's, I, I think it's a very complex answer to give into how we would as a homogenous blob respond to lockdown and food. But I think what lockdown would have done, and this is a critical thing, because our behavior around food is governed not only by our genes, but by the genes interaction with the environment. And lockdown was a very, very significant environmental impact the like of which none of us have seen in our lives. I don't think. Okay. Um, um, so this is a very new type of scenario that we would be facing. So there will be undoubtedly a huge influence influencing the relationship of many, many, many different people in different ways to food. And let's see what happens, to be fair. I think there will be studies um, in a few years' time looking back upon this time 
and upon how lockdown has actually influenced average BMI, um, rates of disease, and everything else. I don't think it's a flippant question at all. I think it's a very, very relevant question. I just can't give you an easy answer. Giles Yo, thank you ever so much. That's actually all we've got time for this month. We've pondered just some of the fascinating science around food, drink, the brain, and the rest of the body. Thanks to Giles, to Katerina Johnson and Christopher Zimmerman, and to Helen Keyes and Duncan Astle. Join us again next month to peer into the runnings of our nervous systems. Until then, thanks very much for listening and goodbye. Goodbye.